Vexy's musical podcast. If you were around in the 1980s, then you are fully aware that there were some things that were indisputably true. MTV was more essential than high school algebra. You likely owned something from the chess king, or at least wish that you did. And at least somebody you knew was really into the police. Now, I happen to be all three of those people. In 1983, the police released their final album, Synchronicity. It was my junior year in high school, and Synchronicity was not only the biggest album of the year, it was their most successful album by a mile. And when the police broke up the following year, we were all like, well, what do you mean the police broke up? What are we supposed to do now? In other words, we weren't quite ready to give them up. So when the police reformed 14 years later and went on tour, it was a massive, albeit temporary, success. And in the end, Stuart Copeland, Sting, and Andy Summers resumed their successful solo careers, but at least there seemed to be some sort of closure with the band that brought them together. The truth is I owned all of the police records on vinyl, but in researching for this interview today with Andy Summers, I learned that Andy Summers' career is probably the most interesting of the entire band, dating back to as far back as the mid-1960s. And since the police, he's gone on to release more than a dozen solo albums, release a half dozen film scores. He's written eight books, including his latest collection of short stories entitled Fretting and Moaning, which I have since read since recording this interview. This is my interview with the great Andy Summers of The Police on Baxi's musical podcast. Thank you so much for for doing this. I, I, I really do appreciate it. I've been I've been a big fan since... 1978, and uh, <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I wasn't I'm, born until 1987, so I don't know where you got that from. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, about two years ago, somebody let me borrow uh, your book, One Train Later, and uh, for a variety of very questionable reasons, I've, I've never returned the book. And uh, I just finished re-watching for like the ninth time the documentary based on the book, I Can't Stand Losing You. And, you know, one of the things that occurs to me that for all the attention that was drawn towards Sting over the last 40-some-odd years, I actually find you and Stuart to be far more interesting people. I quite agree. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> but I'm the best one. Uh, well, no, uh, no question. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> Stuart's father was the, the founding member of the CIA, and you were hanging out with guys like Clapton and Jimi Hendrix. I don't, I don't yeah. hear Sting doing any of those things. He was, he was in a coal mine in Newcastle. <laughs> in right. England. And that's, and that's not interesting. This is going to be all about you today. So okay, I like it. when I read the book, there were a number of moments throughout the, uh, the story which, where which book? one train later, I'm going back here a little bit because, okay. and I know you've got a new book and I, and I do want to talk about that for a second. But okay. one of the things that I, that occurs to me as I, as I you know, inform myself about your history is there's maybe 30 or 40, holy shit moments in that book where you don't even realize the kind of background you came from going all the way back to the mid sixties. What was going on in England back then with all the, for whatever reason, the mid sixties on, it's like one great guitar player emerges one after another, whether it's you or Clapton or Peter Green or Jeff Beck, what was going on over there? Yeah, it is extraordinary looking back at that, you know, marvelous moment actually the 60s you know that it was so creative i get you know i mean that you could talk about this for a long time come up with a lot of theories but i think it was like really the recovery finally in 
Europe, England from World War II, you know, the sort of depression and repression disappeared and it burst into this sort of rainbow colored culture, you know, everything was open, including electric guitar playing, rock and roll, blues and, and white boys possessing this American music and coming from, you know, a, a small, tightly packed country that was pretty gritty in a way. Right. Working class country that, uh, you know, had the right elements to produce, you know, great rock music. And, uh, you know, somehow we had the, I mean, it's interesting, you know, the empathy with American music that you, you don't find quite the same way in Italy, Germany, France or Spain, but the Brits that sort of were able to sort of play the blues. It's interesting. Um, it, it was a fantastic moment. And I think we're still getting, you know, we're still, um, the seeds of the 60s continue to proliferate and carry on in waves throughout the world. No question about that. It's it's interesting how, you know, how many of, you know, the guitar players in the UK were focused on American music, but yet around the same period of time, Americans were so, you know, obsessed with uh, the music coming out of the UK. It was like, it was almost like a, mm. <laughs> like an exchange program of, of uh, of great bands and 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 music at least that, that's what it you know it seemed like that you you guys were cultivating great stuff over there and all of that stuff was being informed by what was going on in the US no i mean i think we all look to america i mean america's you know greatest artistic contribution i think is music you know the jazz or you know the motown you go on there's so much great stuff came out of the us in terms of musical hybrids because of the history of the nation you know Black slaves come into you know, Africans come into America, meeting with white people, and all this incredible music all over the country that that appeared over time. Highly influential on Brits. I mean, the state of British pop music at that time was pretty diabolical, and <laughs> with the '60s, you know, really trite, stupid stuff. I can remember some of those things like. You're a pink toothbrush. I'm a blue toothbrush. <laughs> How much is that doggy in the window? So on and so forth. Real rubbish. And, you know, maybe in a way it was sort of, I mean, the first band I was in was definitely rhythm and blues. And we were really trying to be Ray Charles, James Brown, you know, Rufus Thomas, all the great R&B um, African-American artists that were coming out in the States. And then, of course, the Beatles were doing that as well. And then the Beatles were four white boys who sort of spearheaded the revolution where everybody started to write their own songs and want to be the Beatles and, and the whole sort of um, possibilities of pop music and guitar playing arose at that point. It was just an incredible sort of cultural melting point. It's interesting how, you know, in, in, at least in white America, we learn more about the blues from the British than yeah. we learned from our own citizens who yeah. are creating this stuff the entire time. Well, I guess, you know, in a weird way, you know, superficial way, it took somebody like, you know, I mean, there were guys like Mike Bloomfield in the US as well, who were, you know, white guys playing, you know, the black blues. And of course, in London, we had, well, principally, I'd say Eric Clapton, who, who was the first one who sort of ascended in that. And I knew him very well in those days. Um, you know, and he was kind of a cute guy, I suppose, and he could sing a little bit at the beginning, not much. But that was that was sort of the start, and and it started kind of you know the blues boom in London. Actually, it was the blues boom. Everybody wanted to do the Eric, you know, and and, and it all caught on. Right. Of course, it was all, all all copied from the US. I mean, Eric was doing solos, note for note from like Albert King and uh, you know 
bb king and all of them you know was, that's that's what was going on you, know? you said so, you were you were friendly with with clapton but you were also pretty friendly with with Jimi hendrix and and i know that that when he came and performed that the story is the first time uh you know he just kind of mopped the floor with everybody and and i mean what was Jimi hendrix like to hang out with he very yeah he sent the shockwave through through London and pretty much wiped out every guitar player in London within about a week. It was all <laughs> over, you know, cause this guy was coming from another planet. Well, it's quite incredible. Um, he was a very almost shy, soft-spoken guy. You think is an introvert on stage. It was something else, but around him, he was, yeah, he was not, this not, he was not a big mouthy, you know, high personality guy. It was all in the playing. There's a story about you actually with him playing bass with you. Yeah, he did. Well, we were really going back a long time. Um, yeah, I happened to be in Los Angeles and in Hollywood and I, like, we were we were all in a circle. Everybody, you know, I was in the animals then and we all kind of knew each other. Right. And we got the word that Jimmy was gonna be playing it, I think it was called TTG Studios down in on La Brea in Los Angeles. So we went down to see him because we kind of knew him. We were, <laughs> I think it was, I went with Zoo, maybe one other person. There's only about two or three of us went into the control room and there was Jimmy leaning back, you know, he had the hat on with the feather and the white strat and, you know, and all that. And it was just roaring, you know, and it was like, <laughs> stopped you dead in your tracks, you know, I mean, it was like a force of nature. And he sort of gave a shy wave and came into the control room. I don't know, was listening. I want, I personally wandered out into the control room. Mitch Mitchell was sitting at his drums messing around and I knew Mitch as well, of course. So, I picked up a guitar, I think it was a Les Paul, and it was the right way around. It wasn't left-handed like for Jimmy. So I started playing it and I started jamming with Mitch. <laughs> and then, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not miraculous when you think back about it. Jimmy came out and picked up the bass. And so we just continued on as a trio. <laughs> and after about 10, 12 minutes, Jimmy said, hey man, you do mind if I play guitar for a bit? I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me the bass, you know, and so that's that's how it went, you know. <laughs> but it, and it, it, there it was actually a recording of it. I think at, at surfaced years later. I think it was Eddie Kramer was recording it. Really? And I knew him too. Yeah, I think it was. And anyway, it did come out later. Somebody found it, and then we all jammed together for about fifteen minutes and had our little moment, you know. That, I mean, that had to be that had to be a lot of fun to be playing with a guy like that. Well, you know, he kind of. He was the top of the world at that particular moment on the guitar. You know, he, everybody was like totally in awe of Hendrix. You know, he was the man. <laughs> you, you talk about music being uh, available in, in, in a way. Uh, I, I thank goodness for Spotify because in the last couple of days, I've been able to listen to, you know, Zoot Money and the Big Roll Band. And I even listened to Dantalian's Chariot just to kind of get some perspective on what those those bands were like. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it it's cool to have that available to you because I don't, I don't know if you can even buy uh, a Dantalian chariot <laughs> record anymore. Well, they all anymore. came out. I mean, it's an interesting story. This was my acid rock band that I was in until it all ended with a bad car accident, and that, that was the end of that. It seemed like we were doomed. We had made an LP, you know, a long player, and we actually had a hit with a song called uh, Madman Running Through the Fields. This is very much of that period, but it was a hit. It was in the top, it was in the charts. So that was very good news for us. Um, 
we made an LP for Columbia and somehow with the end of the band and all this, uh, uh, and I left and came to the US, um, the record disappeared and it took something like 25 to 30 years to find it. And Zoot found it somewhere in the basement of, you know, Columbia Records building in London. It was somewhere. He actually got it and it came out first as a single LP, I think, or double CD. That came out as a double CD. It all got out, you know, finally, you know, and it was kind of hilarious to listen back to <laughs> that moment in time, you know, very spinal tap in a way, but very sweet, you know. It's definitely of that psychedelic period. There's no, yeah. there's no question about it. But, but the, uh, yeah. the, the big roll band was actually a pretty good, uh, you know, R and B band. I thought it was, it was a really good band. It was a great band. It was a real good band. Great R and B, you know, blues singer. Uh, very entertaining. Great on stage, and you know, we had a really tight outfit, you know. But it was all, you know, James Brown. I mean, I think the first our first show was all of what we just did was James Brown live at the Apollo <laughs> A sides. That was our show. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, anyway, great fun when you're like 18, 19 years old. You know, <laughs> this is what I was doing. You know, great training ground for Ab- the future. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about the police here for for a minute because oh, no. yeah, I'm, I'm promote my book, man. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna get to, well, I I'm gonna get to the book. It's all in there. I know, and it what's what's really cool about about this is the first time that you guys play, you talk about a chemistry or you or, or an inference that you guys were just nailing it from from pretty much the start. Was that something that I mean, once you find the right guys and it seems like in in bands that's really kind of you know the magic once you find the right mix of of guys it's just like this organic thing that that happens where this chemistry that yeah you you can't you can't say oh this is the formula and this is so this is what we need it doesn't work that way it's sort of an act of nature if it happens you know you're very lucky is it is it even possible to describe what that chemistry is all about or is it really something that's almost indescribable it, you know, it is kind of a slightly mystical, I think, when you get these three three people with three sets of energies and different personalities, but somehow in the music, it comes together. And it certainly did with the police, you know. Uh, very hard to ever repeat. Again, you know, people used to come at other guys, musicians, oh, we could have done that, we could have done that. I said, no, you couldn't. No way. <laughs> Not in a million years you couldn't have done that. Yeah. It's unique. Otherwise, everybody would be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, it was hugely influential. I like to think a lot of my guitar playing ended up in the lexicon of possible guitar styles, <laughs> which it did. It did. It all did, you know. And but the band was unique. I think unrepeatable. And I think it's why it's still as big as it is. It's still fresh sounding. I did uh, an interview with Miles Copeland a couple months ago, and you know he had just written a book about his his career and his life and. He act, there was a couple stories about the police that you know I've heard, but you know his perspective of it is it was much more detailed and a little bit more graphic. He, you know, he talked about the hesitancy that you guys had about the song Roxanne, like you didn't feel like it fit with all the other stuff, and uh, it got played for him, and then all of a sudden he says, "No, that's the the hit of your career." And and yeah, if- I can tell you the, the, the anecdote, if you like. Sure. Miles is a different kind of person. 
uh, we won't go into that. I'm just going to pay him a small tribute here, and that's going to be about as much as I want to say. We were, you know, starting out trying to find our way in the studio. I mean, our beginnings were funky because no one wanted us. We could only get in this particular studio on like a Sunday afternoon. And we did it for about six months, which is how the first album, Outlandos, was made. And we, we kept updating it until we thought, oh, we've got an album, you know. And Miles would make these uh, moody, non-speaking visits once in a while because Stuart's his brother. Um, it, but we were sort of suffering from reverse nepotism, if you like. Right. And we played him our tracks, whatever we were playing, thinking, oh, he's going to like this. Gonna like... I don't know why we felt like this, but we did at that point because it was early days. Didn't like any of it. And then we put on Roxanne and he jumped up and down on the sofa and went, that's it, you know, and he... <laughs> he absolutely thought Roxanne was a great hit. And he was right. And he took it to A&M next day and they were interested. You know, they suddenly, somehow, you know, corporate record company people, what the beep do they know? They got it. <laughs> it came out. It didn't go anywhere, really, except it got notice in the music magazines, music papers in England, like, mm, this might be a band to watch, might be a band to watch. But it didn't it wasn't a hit that came the second time around when we released it one year later and it went straight to the top 10 i think it went to number one and then of course it was number one everywhere in the world anyway so yeah I mean, train it, sort of jump fits and starts but so, miles spotted it so what was i mean what was the the hesitancy for for you guys with that song which is just a, a, a well because we were deep in the fury of the london punk scene <laughs> you know it was nothing but gobbing and spit and you know, it, no musical ability whatsoever. And we had a song called Rock Sound, like a ballad. And um, we were kind of scared to play a ballad, you know, like, God, this is absolutely going against the way everything's going. We can't possibly do this. And yeah, of course, it was what it was, is, will be forevermore. It, it's funny how, you know, early on, uh, you guys got lumped into this punk rock genre. Which yeah. you know anybody who really was into punk music knew that was not what the police were all about. But you know whether it was the press or you know radio stations or the yeah. record company, you're, you're trying to kind of understand or you know you know, put you guys in some sort of box to you know for some sort of descriptive language. You know to, to be lumped into that, but to not be a punk band. No, we weren't. At all, at, at all. I mean, in in a lot of ways, I, I look at the police as being a little bit like the Stranglers used to be. Not really a punk band. Much better, though. Yeah. Much, yeah, much better. But 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 also, you know, older than a lot of these punks, uh, punk bands were too. And you could actually play your instruments as. Well, you know. yeah. No, look, the prevailing credo was you don't have to play. We're just, you know, we're all about revolution. It's all bullshit, you know. Most of them were from sort of <laughs> middle-class families. They weren't even working class. But they liked the uniform. So, you know, there was a dress. There was a style. It was the cool thing to be was to be punk and to, to do all this stuff. You can totally understand. It was a sort of youth movement that only lasted about three years, actually. And we came in, and for us, it was sort of a flag of convenience. You know, the first songs we played were very fast and kind of punky things like dead end job landlord. I mean, they were terrible, but they, you know, this went on for a little while. Once I was in the band and we started all, we, all, we didn't have any gigs. So all we could do was rehearse. So we rehearsed a lot. We started to, I, you know, and I was obviously a different sort of guitar player. 
and this is where you know all this has been written about a million times sting started to see what was possible and it turns out that he had a big thick book like a bible with all these lyrics and ideas that he wanted and now he had i was the uh, what's the right word conduit you know if you like right put myself down a bit that all these things could come to life and that's as as we sort of reshaped ourselves and it didn't sound like punk anymore suddenly it only sounded like the police and we found our <laughs> signature sound through you know always being in the studio and people going you know you guys you sound different you've got something i don't know you know <laughs> it was a new thing but we had great songs we had a great singer you know and the band was different so it was like metapunk, if you like. Right. So I, I, you know, the word for it is, which we found when we came to the states was new wave, like the Talking Heads, like Blondie, like you know, that's kind of about you know, we weren't really a London punk band. Right. It's something else. You know, so I my high school years were like right in the in the sweet spot of of your career. I graduated high school in in 1984. So the years preceding that was you know your most productive. Uh, you know, best-selling years up to to '83 with the uh, with synchronicity, and what's what's interesting, you know, with 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 interviews with people that I've uh, talked to over the years, you know, people who have had the most success kind of kind of describe something that I've heard you describe uh, before, and that is, you know, the the, the fantasy early on is, you know, you want to be the biggest band in the world, but the moment you get there, you find that that kind of success is actually pretty isolating and claustrophobic and disorienting all at, all at the same time. Once the band broke up and you went your separate ways, what was that transition like to, 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 to kind of be restricted? And then all of a sudden you have total freedom to do whatever you want. I mean, do you, is it kind of like you're feeling like naked in the, in, in public or, yeah. or is it kind of like, you know, liberating in a way. Yeah, it's a weird mix of all that. It was very disorienting to suddenly not be in the band and have this fantastic entourage. You know, we'd all been together for eight to nine years, you know, and all you knew was the band, the, the business, the records, being a big deal, you know, being like bowed down to everywhere. You know, you were, you know, we were the hardest band in the world for years. Yeah. It was a very difficult transition to make out into the real world. Like, and I was really like, uh, yeah, I don't know what I said. Because you know, I'm a person who, generally speaking, has his feet on the ground. I'm not like some shithead. I'm not. Um, <laughs> I'm a guitar player, and to me, one of the things I think that kept me my feet on the ground, I have to be able to play very well. This is how I ground myself. But even so, I, you know, it was a very difficult period. You know, the first two years, and you know, things changed. I did some crazy shit, but. Um, what I think kept my feet on the ground was that I have to go in the studio and record and I have to be able to do it. I can't, you know, get drugged out and not be able to play or anything, you know, and I missed the whole thing, but you know, I was a very famous people were crowding around me. Anyway, it didn't make much difference. You wouldn't really know there was a lot of difference except I wasn't doing the shows with the band. Right. You know, I continued on and, you know, gradually recovered, but I'd say it was a couple of years to really get sort of straight again and, you know, be back into, playing, recording, you know, and I moved to LA, then I moved back to London, I was backwards and forwards, I was sort of all over the place, living in different places and finally settled down again. Yeah, I, I hear the the stories kind of over and over again about, you know, the the, the, pr the pressure, and I don't know if it's like, you know, 
like self-created pressure or pressure from outside sources. You know, once you leave something that is great and significant to people, there's always this pressure that you want to replicate success. And, you know, in, 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 in a real way, you, you can't just replicate. You just can't recreate the police out of nothing. And that, you know, that's why it sounds like a lot of guys, you know, don't get out of that rut in the way that, that you have. I mean, because, I mean, you had a lot of, I mean, you've had a, a bunch of solo records. You've played with a lot of people. You've written a couple of books. Uh, you've, you've, your, your photography of those years has been, you know, shown in galleries and has been published. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that you have done that have prevented you from falling into that, into that situation where you're always reliving that one thing. Do you know what I, does that make sense? Well, it's a really interesting point that you make. And I think that's what, what's this points to in a weird well, this is what's come to my head is, are you the real thing or not? Or are you just a guy that got lucky to be in that band and that was it for you? No, it wasn't. That band, for me, was a stepping point into having a genuinely creative career where I've done, made 15 solo albums, got a new one coming out, I've done books, photography shows, blah, 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 you know, and continue to play for the rest of my life. That was the start, you know, I think of it as the starting point, not 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 like an end point and, oh, we just got to keep doing, trying to find some way to replicate that. I had no interest in it. I went a very different direction. So it's a good tester. You, I mean, you come out of something like that and have to sort of redefine yourself in the public eye. You think, I mean, because, I mean, someone like me, and there are many of us, you, you, you think that there's always this audience there for you. You know, today it's... it's <laughs> it's a complete vanity i mean i suppose it's slightly tangible because now we have the internet and we have social media you know instagram right. facebook twitter the website and a lot of we all do this i'm on it every day and people want me to be on it and so particularly right now with the pandemic and all that this is sort of the only gig and so i go okay now how can i be entertaining musical creative on the internet instagram and how do you do that and so you have to come you have to start thinking along those lines so you know i'm a person who is creatively driven i'm from one thing to the next thing and i, I that's what drives me on in life and i i enjoy it all I, I i've never got fed up with playing the guitar or anything or writing or whatever you talked about in the in the book this trends uh you know one train later this transition from being you know, an, a guy in a, in a band to becoming an artist where, it, you know, the creative process is what eventually and ultimately drives you. Like, you know, yes. like that's the end game. It's not about selling, you know, se uh, 70 million records or having a number one hit for, you know, 17 weeks or, or whatever. It's, it's, yeah. the, it's the creative achievement at the end of the road that you see, and that's, and that's the goal. I think a yes. lot of, I think that's more satisfying for a lot of people rather than just this, you know, this unattainable recreation of, of unattainable success. That's got to, that's, that's, is what it is. And, you know, uh, I felt personally as a musician, all that, I've, where I really got going was after the end of the place. You know, people go, oh, what, you know, the, you know the, the problem with this gigantic success is that's what you're known for. And it's very hard to overcome. But you have to go on regardless. And right. only authors feel it, musicians get it, singers get it, you know, all anybody in the uh, artistic medium, if they create one thing that's really popular, the, the world wants you to just keep doing that one thing over and over. But it, it's impossible. When you guys uh, got back together for that reunion tour in 2007, which, you know, it's hard to believe that's 
what is that, 14 years ago? I mean, that's a long time ago. Yeah, I know. It's amazing already. <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. that, that kind of oh, went pretty quick. What, what, yeah. what was it that got you guys to, you know, put aside any, any differences or, or, or awkwardness to, to go back and, and, and to do that tour? Well, I mean, the cynical answer would be money. But I don't think that was it. I think we all wanted the thrill of it because what I personally, any goal for me was to go, we were the best band and we still are. And you motherfuckers are going to get it tonight. And <laughs> that's what they got. They got the best fucking band in the world. And we went out there. I thought it was the best we ever played yeah. because none of us had ever stopped. We'd all been playing, writing and recording all the way through until we did that, that big tour again. And of course, all the, technology was incredible by the time we got to go out i mean it was an amazingly deluxe tour with incredible technical support and everything it was wonderful so and very satisfying to only play in stadiums that's what we played in all over the world and have such a massively successful tour it was a complete win for everybody do you you see a possibility of that ever happening again or is that ship kind of sailed at this point I think it sailed, but life is weird. I just don't really know. I I would be miraculous. I mean, you know, if Sting and Stuart went down on bended knee and really begged, I might think about throwing them across. <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to think about those bastards. <laughs> so you, you would be the one dragging your heels on that one? Yeah, I'd be dragging my heels, making it hard for him. I'd have to have the most money. So, you know. Well, you deserve, <laughs> as the most interesting member of the band, I think you would deserve that. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I do want to talk about the new book, uh, Fretting and, yeah, and Moaning. Right. This is, I, I, I think this is a really cool thing. It's it's 45 short stories that you've written. I assume these these short stories you've been working on for a, a, an awful long time. Not really. I, you know, I had, there are a couple in there that are about 10 years old. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. I had like five or six. And... I was on stage, I was doing a multimedia one-man show, and I would read some of these, and they would go down and storm. People were like, you know, and I showed them to people and got, you know, really good response. And, you know, and I used to writing, I wrote the autobiography. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to go on. And so I I just sort of started, I, I must have spent a portion of time really bearing down on it, writing every day, all sorts of notes, ideas for these stories, until I... Pierce that you know got the whole thing together and right. then you know went out there to get it published and I'm very happy to see that it's actually doing really well and it's a very interesting publisher in England as publishing the book and there's and there's a, a couple of different uh, versions of it too I mean there's some yeah there's like four versions like the ultimate you know where I come to your house and we have children together and um, you know, we make a commitment for life. That's number one. <laughs> I jest. Uh, no, oddly sorry. enough, that's the cheapest one, right? Yeah, that's one. <laughs> Easy sell. Yeah, that's for, yeah, deluxe, ultra deluxe, deluxe, you know, with a signed thing, then the lovely hardback, and then there's a softback that I think will turn up on uh, Amazon probably in September. Right. And um, I am going to make an appearance at the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles on the 18th of August. If people want to fly from Boston to L.A. to see me. Why wouldn't they? Why, why wouldn't, why wouldn't they, they do that? You know, Absolutely. And make a visit. <laughs> so I'm doing that. It'll be my third time. I always enjoy it because it's a nice, very posh little museum with a nice little, you know, 
200 seat room right it was pleasant and uh maybe we'll sell the book there i don't know the moment you get it on you go to andysummersbook.com and you can pre-order it now you, you kind of hinted that there's some uh, there's some new andy summers music coming out too yeah actually i uh, have a we'll have a new album it's called harmonics of the night and that'll be out in october we just sent everything off to have it actually manufactured. Mm-hmm. This is a, a bit of a gap for me between um, making, putting out CDs because of the pandemic, everything sort of went south. But I have a, a photography show in London at Mayfair, Leica, the book, rec- you know, with a catalog, the photo show, and, and the CD all coming together at that point in time. I'll be playing Richard III at the Old Vic. <laughs> Just want you to keep it all tabs on. <laughs> well, well, good, because I'm writing notes. I want to make sure I get to every one of these things. Richard so. III. Richard III. <laughs> well, the Well, uh, and, and, the, and the book you said is uh, fretting and moaning, uh, looking for like a, a September release in the States, or is it is it a bit? It, it might be on Amazon by then. It's available now. You can pre-order it. I mean, he has a way of doing it. This gentleman has got a very nice publishing company, but he does everything on the Internet. So it's on Instagram, a lot on Facebook. And he sort of builds the audience. And I've done a couple of little things on Instagram, like reading a couple of the shorter stories to camera. And people love it. You know, so, you know, I don't mind doing a few of them that way. That's awesome. I can't, I can't wait to, to to read the book. I can't wait for oh, an, another. Oh, man. I, no. You should be doing it, you? I thought you'd read it. The new one? Oh, have... No, oh. I, I, did not get a, I did not get a copy yet. But, you know, I'll... I'll uh... I'll buy. Oh, it. I'll go ahead. No, that's why you're being so quiet about it. Because everybody's <laughs> supposed to have read the book, so then we have an informed interview. Because I think you, you, I can tell, talking to you would enjoy it. Oh, I would love it. I would love it. Yeah. Like well, a, like I like I said, I've I've been I've been in your corner for an awful long time. Uh, you know, since the since the since Roxanne was out, and ever yeah. since. So, to so to to read the book, to talk to you, to hear new music. I, I really well, do you may want to come it. back after you've read the book and because you'll have a lot of new information shocking information well I, I'm sure well it's 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 not so much whether I would want to talk to you would you want to redo this again maybe <laughs> maybe yeah, you might be able to talk to me. I might want some money next time oh okay well uh yeah I'll, I I got 20 bucks in my pocket I don't know if, if that'll if that'll be enough my book is good it's a start it's it, it is a start. Andy, it's, it is a, a real pleasure to talk to you, and 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 best of luck with all this stuff. I I, I can't wait to uh, to hear the new stuff and to and to read the book. It's it's it's, okay. a, it's awesome. All right, mate. All right, nice to talk to you. Thank you, Andy. We appreciate the time. Take care. All, all right. right, ciao. The name of Andy Summers' new book is Fretting and Moaning, and it's available on pre-order. And like you said, his new album is due later in the fall, sometime around October. If you enjoyed the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me at backs at rock102.com. Feel free to share it, review it, and please check out our socials on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Come back next time for our next episode on Baxi's Musical Podcast.